Before we begin, I want to warn you that this episode contains conversation about sensitive topics, including domestic violence, depression and suicide, which might be difficult for some listeners. If you feel uncomfortable with these subjects, please stop listening now and pick a different episode. Please read this letter for me if you don't want to talk. First time in my life I realised just how much I love you. I don't think I can live without you in this house. Deepak, if you come back, I promise you, I won't touch black coffee again. I won't go to town every week. I won't eat green chilies. What I'm you're hearing is a letter from a woman called Karinjit Alawalia to her husband, read out as evidence in court to prove that she had been subjected to years of domestic violence and coercive control. It has been described as a charter of slavery. Events that happened in the years after this letter was heard in court would go on to change the way domestic abuse cases are handled and would affect how domestic abuse survivors are perceived worldwide. And that's why we featured the letter in an exhibition exploring the history of women's rights at the British Library. We are living in what some have called an epidemic of domestic abuse in the UK. It's a large part of the ongoing struggle for women's rights, justice and just the ability to live a life free from the threat of violence. I'm Polly Russell, a curator at the library responsible for the unfinished business exhibition that's now open in London and throughout the UK. The exhibition is brilliant, so please do come in person and visit. But we also wanted to get deep into some of the themes it covers, and that's where this podcast comes in. From women in mental health to comedy to cycling and more, I've been having fascinating conversations with some remarkable women. And today, it's domestic abuse and how it affects women across the UK. I think it's quite comforting talking to other women who've been through it, but it's comforting to know that you're not alone. I didn't make mistakes, that it actually had nothing to do with me. It was all about them. Honestly, they worked a lot with me by building up my confidence and uh, making me realize it was just a reconstruction of a broken person into a normal human, I would say. But I want to introduce you to someone who's passionate about ending this epidemic, best-selling author and today's co-host, Holly Bourne. I think domestic violence is one of the biggest scars in our society. It's killing women, it's traumatising families, it has a huge economic cost, a huge mental health cost. We're at year 2020 and it's not getting any better. Why not? I'm Holly Bourne and I have unfinished business. Inspired by her work with charities and young people, Holly is a passionate mental health advocate and determined to end domestic abuse. Domestic abuse came to public attention in the early 1970s with the setting up of the first shelter for women in Chiswick, London. At the time, there was no law against marital rape in the UK. Lone women could not apply for a mortgage and domestic violence was a taboo subject. The subject may not be taboo any longer, but it's still a huge problem. 
For the year ending March 2019, according to the Office for National Statistics, an estimated 1.6 million women aged 16 to 74 years experienced domestic abuse. And two women a week are killed by a current or former partner in England and Wales alone. And I'm not just talking about physical abuse, but coercive control, a pattern of assault, threats, humiliation and intimidation used to harm, punish or frighten a victim. The coronavirus pandemic has only made things worse. In August, national domestic abuse charity Women's Aid released a report called A Perfect Storm about the impact of COVID-19 on domestic abuse survivors. Of those women living with their abuser during lockdown, 61% said the abuse had worsened. So in today's episode, we're exploring the reasons it happens, how it can affect anyone, and what's being done to improve the situation. We're hearing from a woman who's worked to change the landscape over the last 40 years, Pragna Patel, from an organisation Southall Black Sisters, or SBS. This organisation aims to highlight and challenge all forms of gender-related violence against women. Pragna and SBS played a key role in the case linked to the letter that you heard earlier. We faced a lot of hostility, particularly in the community, that was not used to seeing strident, feisty, you know, confident women. You know, we were called homebreakers, homewreckers. And we're also speaking to two survivors of domestic abuse. But let's take a step back and get to know our co-host, Holly. She's written books for young adults which explore romance, mental health and self-doubt. She's also an ambassador for Women's Aid. My teenage daughter is a huge Holly Bourne fan. She loves Holly's books because they feel authentic and refreshingly honest. And her books are really focused on the issues that matter to young people, like bullying, eating disorders and mental health. And a constant theme is relationships, including from loving and healthy to toxic, abusive and damaging. And this is why I wanted Holly to co-host this episode. One of her books in particular stands out for me. It's called The Places I've Cried in Public and tells the story of a toxic relationship between two young people, Amelie and Reese. I wanted to know why she started writing books on such difficult topics for teenagers. I just tried to write the books I felt that I would need as a teenager. And I kind of grew up as a teenager in sort of a kind of feminist Cold War, I guess, which was 90s, where there just, you know, it wasn't a word that was used. There was no discussion about these things. And it was only when I kind of reflect on my teen years where I'm like, feminism would have been a very useful thing to help me give context to some of the negative things that me and my friends were experiencing. And I've always loved writing because I just really believe that stories are such a powerful way to help educate and empower and inspire because even with the technological advances that we have and virtual reality goggles like nothing quite compares to reading a book and how you're kind of everything dissolves away and you're in somebody else's head and you're feeling their feelings as they feel them and you're experiencing their experiences the power of that to enlighten and educate in her 20s, Holly worked for a charity called The Mix that supports young people online. And it was here that she understood how gender inequality is directly linked to violence against women. I trained to be a relationship advisor once I started working there. So I worked on this service where young people could ask a question about any sex and relationship problem that they were having. And that's when I kind of realised it was more a kind of rape crisis service. But young people didn't even realise that's what it was. Um, and so I just had 
young women contacting me, most shifts, describing a rape or a sexual assault, usually almost always at the hands of their partner or ex-partner or somebody that they knew and would be confused about what had happened to them. And that was when I kind of started to realise just the, the horrifying normalisation of abusive relationships and sexual coercion and control that young girls are suffering at the hands of boys and men who claim to love them. Holly, you dealt really directly with these issues in your book, The Places I've Cried in Public, and I just wanted to know if that was very much informed by your experience working with the, that charity. Writing The Places I've Cried in Public was very much informed by that job. I really wanted to tell the story of a teenager having the sort of perfect love story, the sort of love story that I know that 15-year-old Holly would be gagging to have happen to her. <laughs> you know, like the hottest guy in school picks you out and he's really good looking and he's really charming and he's in a band. And that sort of actually, in all these things that we tend to see in romance films, particularly romance films aimed at teenagers. But I wanted to sort of show that actually we live in a society where these romantic storylines, if you're kind of trained to identify abusive behaviour, a massive red warning flags. Uh, as I sort of said, uh, Hollywood tends to take red flags and turn them into red roses. And so I wanted to place that I cried in public to sort of start like popular films like, you know, Twilight and stuff where these characters are abusive, but actually show what would happen, which isn't you live happily ever after with a sparkling fit vampire with a six pack. <laughs> it's actually you, you by the age of 18, you have post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, and might struggle to have healthy relationships because you've been completely gaslighted and eroded and you don't even know what healthy love looks like anymore. And what I tried to do in the places I've cried in public as well is sort of show the good side, dare I say it, of abusive relationships as well. Because I think when we look at these conversations about survivors and victims, we're always a bit like, why doesn't he leave him? And if anyone ever hit me, then I would be out. But not realizing that actually the beginning of an abusive relationship can be absolutely amazing. Abusers find this weird hack to just kind of get into, as you said, the most vulnerable parts of ourselves. You know, there's parts in all of us that want to be loved. Um, and it's only kind of gradually these kind of positive things are getting replaced by negative things and the negative things get worse and worse and the positive things get less and less and so I wanted the places I've cried in public to explain things like brainwashing tactics so that if you're in Amelie's head feeling her feelings you can kind of start understanding why someone might not leave. In March 2020 a domestic abuse bill was reintroduced to Parliament what the bill does is create Britain's first ever statutory definition of domestic abuse, emphasising that domestic abuse is not just physical violence, but can also be emotional, coercive or controlling and economic. The bill, which was first presented in 2017, has taken years to wind its way through Parliament and the House of Lords. Many groups and individuals gave evidence and helped shape the bill, including a project run by Women's Aid called Law in the Making, which sought to ensure survivors' voices were at the heart of the legislation. They had sessions with MPs and members of the House of Lords. One of the women involved was Judith. One of the things that we feel very important is about getting people to understand what domestic abuse is and trying to get them to talk about it. 
Do you mind um, talking us through what led you to kind of start working with Women's Aid? Well, what led me there was the fact that I'd been in an abusive relationship for over 30 years. And it's exhausting when you're in that situation, trying to manage it day in, day out is just exhausting. I got married at 24. My husband was charming. He appeared to everybody else that he was really caring. People always remarked on how nice he was, but he wasn't like that at home. He was completely different. He spent most of his time undermining me, trying to tell me that I wasn't any good at anything, would periodically suggest that I gave up work. And then when I had children, he was very desperate for me to stay at home. I was lucky that I continued to work um, because work became my safe place. But I didn't talk to anybody. I was ashamed. I didn't actually believe what was happening because you're constantly told that everything's your fault and you you begin to believe that. And finally, when it did finish, and it finished because he'd had an affair, and I was quite lucky. And I went into counselling about the breakdown of the marriage. And it was only when I was about six weeks into counselling that I actually sent an email to my counsellor with a picture of me with a black eye, sort of admitting what had gone on. And that for me was the sort of cathartic moment that I'd actually admitted it to myself, what had gone on for 30 years. Oh, I mean, 30 years is a long time. It's a lifetime and yeah. it's, he stole my life. He took my life from me in the same way that if I died, um, I can't get my life back. I hear survivors say that so much, this, this robbing of life, of time, of your youth. Um, and it seems to me that the abuse that you've described is awful, but it sounds like actually the time after leaving seems like it was very, very challenging as well. What do you think people should know more about when an abusive relationship ends? I mean, I'm sort of five, six years down the line now and it's still got repercussions. I think it's almost as well when you've left, people think that that's it, that, you know, it'll get better. And it does get better, but there's all the mental health issues, there's all the trauma that you actually have to deal with and deal with on a daily basis. So, Judith, you kind of work with Women's Aid. What is it like for you when you access these services and had people say it's not OK and maybe met other survivors and started sharing these stories? In some ways, it's it's almost funny when you talk to other survivors that... The stories are the same and you begin to say, oh, yeah, mine did that. And it's almost like there's a manual <laughs> that they've read this manual. They all display very, very similar behaviours. I think it's quite comforting talking to other women who've been through it. But it's comforting to know that you're not alone I didn't make mistakes, that it actually had nothing to do with me. It was all about them. Yeah. So I work with young people as an ambassador for the Love Respects campaign for Women's Aid, which is about educating young people about what a healthy relationship looks like. What do you wish young people could know about 
abusive relationships and violence against women in a domestic setting? You should be in a relationship where there is mutual respect, mm -hmm. a relationship where you're not asked or put in a position to do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, you must trust your instincts. Our love shouldn't feel that bad. <laughs> and just finally, so we're at a kind of crunch moment in terms of the legal side of you know domestic violence and that the domestic abuse bill is, is going through at the moment with changes that I know from talking through survivors, like some of this stuff I can't believe is legal. Like at the moment, uh, an abuser can still cross-examine their victim in, in a family court. That's technically still legal at the moment. So that, that's one of many things that the domestic abuse bill is, is trying to change. Like, what would you want things to change today that would make women and their children who are victims of domestic violence safer? It's about heightening awareness. It's about people actually talking about it. I think there is a problem with the new legislation that's going through that migrant women are not going to get proper recognition. And that's a real problem. I mean, if I feel isolated in the country that I live in, that I grew up in, it must be a hundred times worse for people who come here. The issue Judith just touched on is something I really want to explore with our next guest, Pragna Patel, director of Southall Black Sisters, an organisation which has been running since 1979. The organisation has been campaigning against gender-based violence for women of colour and has radically changed perceptions about domestic abuse. Like so many domestic abuse organisations across the country, Southall Black Sisters has run hand-to-mouth over the years and has been totally reliant on the tenacity and commitment of people like Pragna. The organisation runs an advice, advocacy and resource centre in West London. Although their focus is on the needs of black and minority women, they state that they won't turn any woman away who needs emergency help. Holly was also very keen to speak to Pragna. You know, you just like just watch other women just completely kicking ass just from afar, <laughs> and then you kind of get giddy at the thought of actually getting to meet them. Like that's that's how I feel about uh, meeting Pregna today and uh, talking about the incredible work she's done and the legacy she's already got, and how much I'm sure she's gonna continue to achieve with South All Black Sisters. So we all met up on Zoom and Pragna started by explaining how the organisation has changed the way it supports Black and Asian women living in the UK. Hi, Pragna. Hi. Hi. Hi, hi. Hello. When I joined in 1982, the original members of the organisation, the campaigning group, had left. So I kind of resuscitated it. And then in 82, I set up the Advocacy Centre. To be honest, I was a young, young girl, barely out of college, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just kind of went with a gut instinct, which was to support women and girls, particularly from black minority communities who I felt were really invisible in the kind of public arena. And so it was that gut feeling of wanting to empower women and girls that I had seen, say, from my own community, who led very sheltered, very restricted lives, you know, with very little in terms of encouragement to aspire to anything else other than marriage and, and motherhood. And of course, we're also talking about a landscape where racism was prevalent. I mean, that kind of raw racial violence that you see on the streets. So it was what I did know was that it was important to try and 
project an alternative image of women. So not an image of women that kind of fits traditional gender stereotypes, you know. We didn't want to set up a centre that was providing cookery classes or traditional activities. And um, at the time, we faced a lot of hostility, particularly in the community that was not used to seeing strident, feisty, you know, confident women. You know, we were called homebreakers, homewreckers. And then what we found is when we set up the centre, we were worried. We didn't really have any clue what women were going to come to us with, what kind of issues. And very quickly, we found that most of the women who are coming to us from all backgrounds, from all kind of minority backgrounds, African, Caribbean, Asian, Middle Eastern, that they were coming to us mainly with issues to do with gender-based violence. It's just so interesting to hear. I, it's interesting that the centre initially wasn't set up specifically for that reason and yet when you when you give a safe space because I was brought into this work by I was working at a youth charity as a sex and relationship advisor and was there to cover all sorts of questions which we did but what drew me into working with violence against women is yeah it was the moment you create this space an anonymous safe space I was basically a domestic violence sexual violence worker and it just shows you maybe how little space there is for women to, to open up. But things have changed for the better while Pragna has worked at SBS. Back in the 70s, back in the 80s, there was no understanding of gender-based violence in minority communities. There was no understanding of issues like forced marriage, honour-based violence, uh, female genital mutilation or other harmful practices. And I can remember so vividly the amount of times I would take young girls, or even as young as 13, to social services and ask social services to protect them because as children they were being forced into marriage and social services denying any kind of support, arguing that these girls came from different cultural backgrounds where these things were part of their culture and that was their baggage and they had to live with it. I remember those kinds of responses. I mean, you know apart from them being devastating for the women, young girls involved and the young women involved, absolutely infuriating us and leading us to campaign around, say, for example, forced marriage. You know, better laws, better understanding, better responses, better practices in relation to forced marriage. So the campaigning and the policy work we do is really, really critical also because otherwise you can provide frontline services, but it sometimes feels like just Band-Aid. Mm. It's just so fully comprehensive. It's just, it's like no stone left unturned in terms of all the different things that a survivor would need. One woman South All Black Sisters has supported is Sayida. She told me and Holly her story. I was born in Pakistan and I'm a mother of two children. I was 18 uh, years old when I was forced into a marriage um, and sadly my marriage didn't work out very well. My husband drank excessively on a regular basis, visited prostitutes, assaulted me several times. She came to the UK to study and ended up getting divorced. While she was in the UK, she met another man. They got married, but again, things weren't easy for her. Partly because the couple belonged to different castes, their families rejected the match. Sayada also says she was abused by a family member in the UK. All this shattered my confidence and I used to lock myself in room for days. 
and on several occasions um, I wanted to kill myself and die. So I attended Southly Black Sisters in January 2014 for advice and assistance. Within a week they contacted an immigration solicitor who submitted an emergency application to UKBA to regularize my stay in UK. Yeah, SPS was very concerned about my state of isolation and emotional health and did refer me to GP and their in-house counselling services and support groups. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just, considering everything that you've gone through, what do you wish people could know about abusive relationships? Whoever's like, just say somebody's tuning into this podcast and they don't know anything about abusive relationships or violence against women. What do you wish they they could know? Well, um, I personally believe that there should be an awareness of domestic abuse. To be honest, Holly, I did not even know that that was domestic abuse. The word domestic abuse was very new to me. And what did it feel like when you were presented with that label, as it were, and somebody said to you, what you've experienced is not okay? Thank you, Holly. Initially, I was uh, a bit shattered. It was just a reconstruction of a broken person into a normal human, I would say. So, <laughs> so yes, initially I was shattered. I didn't know when I was in a state of a shock that, oh, have I been through all this? And then gradually absorbing all that, digesting all that, and then trying to figure it out that, no, I have to move on with my life and I have to become more stronger. Because uh, once the relationship has ended, what I have experienced is that, A, you're rejected by society, like that's our culture, so you're the one who has to be blamed for. So you live with that guilt for a long time, which leaves a massive scar and impact um, on your mental health and your confidence and your emotional well-being. All too often, the solution to abusive situations seems simple, just leave. But Sayada's story illustrates the almost impossible reality for women with young children and limited resources. For migrant women with no legal recourse to public funds, they are in a really precarious position. And this is a situation South All Black Sisters deals with regularly. Returning to Pragna, Holly had a question I thought was particularly important. What's the wider impact of domestic violence on not just survivors, but their families and also like the wider communities around us? Like, what does it mean about our society that domestic violence is so prevalent? It's so necessary to prevent domestic violence in the first place, to have early intervention. So at one level, when we argue for early intervention, we are what we're arguing for is changes in the curriculum in schools so that even from the primary school upwards, so that boys and girls understand the need to respect each other. And the reason we say that is because we think that the costs, the economic costs of not doing so, are massive. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of pounds in this country that is spent on addressing domestic abuse. If you don't deal with the abuse, you're going to have to provide children services for children who've witnessed and experienced domestic abuse. And we're now beginning to understand that children who experience domestic abuse ought to be considered victims in their own right because of the impact and the significance of what they experience, what they witness, even if they don't are not the objects of violence themselves. 
So there is an economic cost and is a, you know, in terms of mental health issues, in terms of the criminal justice process that inevitably might follow. At the micro level, of course, families are devastated. At one end of the, of the spectrum are issues of sexual harassment, you know, that women face daily and sexism, sort of everyday sexism, gender stereotypical comments and, you know, immediate images and so on. At the other extreme of that spectrum is homicide and suicide. And Southall Black Sisters have first-hand experience of this. I want to take you back to the letter you heard at the start of the episode. I won't eat green chilies. I'm ready to leave Jandika and all my friends. I won't laugh if you don't like. I won't dye my hair even. Karinjit Alawalia had written this letter while being abused by her husband. The physical, psychological and sexual abuse had lasted for 10 years. In desperation, Karinjit killed her husband in 1992 and she was sentenced to life in prison. And that's where Pragna and Southall Black Sisters stepped in. I mean, we're not condoning what Karinjit did in terms of killing, but we were trying to get society to understand why. And back in the 90s, you know, the focus was always on why they didn't leave when they were, you know, undergoing criminal trials rather than why they didn't leave. So in the Kirinja Alawalia case, it was really important for us to campaign both for her individual freedom, but also to campaign against the very laws that imprisoned her without understanding why. It's good that you brought up um, Kiranjit because part of this exhibition, you've kindly lent a letter that Kiranjit wrote to her, her abusive husband. And I was just looking at it uh, this morning. And what I found incredible about this specific piece of the exhibition is I feel like it totally underpins the complexities of an abusive relationship. She's kind of begging for him to come back and she's saying how much she loves him even though, you know, she goes on to take his life and but because she's been so abused, like all these sorts of things. And then she has this list that she's written of things that she's agreed not to do in order to get his love back. And it's just so, to me, sort of underpinned to sort of, how do we even begin to understand the, the mind of, of somebody who, who wrote that letter? I and mean, it just sort of talk me through that particular part of the exhibition just and, and why it's important for us to confront these uneasy parts of... I remember when that letter was read out at the Court of Appeal by Kirinjit's barrister. We were were challenging her murder conviction and uh, we had gathered evidence to show that she was a battered woman that had not been taken into account at the original trial. So the letter was read out to show the depths of her desperation And there was an absolute silence in the court as that letter was read out by her barrister, Geoffrey Robertson, QC. Giringit was there in the Court of Appeal and she just absolutely burst into tears when that letter was read out. The rest of us were just at complete silence. You could hear a pin drop. That letter, the barrister said, amounted to a charter of slavery. And I think that that is so very true. You know, so this woman saying and pleading with her husband to come back is in the context of the fact that she is made so totally physically and mentally dependent on him. 
is an example of the way in which domestic abuse dynamics are controlling and coercive. It's about exerting absolute control over women of every aspect of their lives. So that's what that letter signifies to me, is the way in which women have to submit to patriarchal codes of conduct, to patriarchal authority. So her desperation to cling on to her husband, I don't see it so much as her love for him, as her desire to remain within the confines of her tradition and culture. Karinjit's conviction for murder was overturned on the grounds of diminished responsibility and was substituted for manslaughter, but the court also loosened the definition of provocation to recognise the impact of domestic abuse and the concept of battered woman syndrome. Her case changed the definition of the legal defence of provocation, now abolished, which enabled abused women to access the defence in circumstances where they killed their husbands due to long histories of abuse. Her appeal changed the nature of justice in the UK and so affected the fate of women in similar situations. After Karinjit's release, two other women, Emma Humphreys and Sarah Thornton, also convicted of murdering their abusive partners, were freed and their convictions for murder were quashed and substituted for manslaughter. But what happened next for Karinjit? She was in prison for three years. It's not easy for women who've been institutionalized to come out. I and, mean, you know, it always seems like a success story, but it's not easy for re- women to rehabilitate. And there have been very tragic stories of women who are just not able to fit back into society. And in Giringit's case, it's the opposite. When Giringit came out of prison and we had to organize some interviews at, at the office, and she was coming to the SBS in a minicab. And she was really scared to get into that minicab because she felt that she would be, you know, it, was, it had become such a big case that her she'd received widespread coverage when she was released from prison. And she was scared that the minicab driver would recognize her and would be hostile towards her. And I'll never forget the story she told me because she said, Pragna, I went in that minicab feeling really, really frightened and not nervous. And she said, he, when I got in the cab, the driver said to me, you're Girinja Aluwalia, you're that woman I saw on television, aren't you? And she nervously said, yes. And he said, congratulations, sister, I'm your brother. Anytime you need any help, you can contact me and you can talk to me. And she said, the relief I felt. And for me, that was also very revealing because it shows how when you challenge when you campaign, you know, it does bring about change. It can be positive. She then got a job in the post office. She has two children. They're now adults. One is married. They went through university, so they're doing very well. And she said in the post office, a lot of people recognized her, but the support she's had has been absolutely brilliant. So in terms of where we've come, I think you're like it seems like one of the things that has been achieved over you know the 40 years you've been working this. I mean, obviously you've sort of saved the lives of, of thousands of women, but it seems that kind of culturally we're starting to recognise coercive control as violence, uh, psychological trauma as trauma, equal to you know physical and how that plays out. I mean relationships, but um, just in terms of sadly how much more we still need to do. 
Um, I know that the domestic violence bill is, is going through Parliament this year. It's been a long time coming, but what will this bill achieve? But also, what are its limitations? Like, what do we still need to fight for? So, yes, the domestic abuse bill has been sort of lauded as a once in a generation, you know, sort of landmark event. And to the extent that we've never had a law on domestic abuse is really, really important. I think that some of the positive aspects of it is that it includes a statutory definition of domestic abuse that doesn't just include physical violence, but also what you're talking about, you know, sort of understanding of coercive controlling dynamics, understanding of economic abuse that also covers the more harmful practices that I was telling you when once never even, you know, accepted as abuse, forced marriage, female gender mutilation, honor-based violence. So it's a definition that's expansive, that's really important, and it's a statutory definition, which means that in state institutions across society, the police, social services, courts, all working to the same definition. But I have to be very honest and frank and say that it really doesn't go far enough and doesn't take an intersectional approach by which I mean that it doesn't really deal with the, the additional structural barriers that are faced by marginalised women, disabled women, and it's not backed by resources. And we at Southall Black Sisters at the moment are very, very... Uh, concerned and therefore our latest campaign is about the fact that migrant women are excluded from protection. So much work done and so much achieved and yet I love how honest you are about how much there is still left to do and I just know that I feel very grateful that there's women like you, you know, confronting these uncomfortable things rather than going yay feminism win and kind of going no this is not good enough even though it's what we wanted. I cannot thank you enough <laughs> for your time and your determination. It's been so wonderful to meet you today and to talk about such a depressing thing. But, <laughs> but weirdly, just talking to you gives me hope. And I know you've given hope to so many women over the course of your career. Thank you. Well, Holly, thank you so much. And I think as long as there are as a generation... Uh, and the next generation, generation after taking up the baton and running with it, then there is hope. So I am equally honoured to have been interviewed by you. Thank you. Amazing hearing from Pragna about the incredible work she and Southall Black Sisters are doing. Before we finish, I was keen to find out how Judith and Sayada are doing. Sayada told us she lives with her two boys. I'm trying to raise them to be decent gentlemen, to, uh, to respect women and regard women, and I've been very open to them about the things that what I have been through. And they have been with me throughout all the crisis. We suffered everything together. So um, I work in a domestic abuse agency, and I'm uh, working with the survivors of domestic abuse with women and children. So, and I really enjoy my job. Wonderful. Amazing. And Judith? Good days, bad days. I'm really lucky. Um, I've got my own home. I've got a job. Um, I'm very happy. Yeah, and I think I think every day of the little things that I appreciate. I appreciate being in my own house, being safe. Um, that makes me smile from day to day. Um, making my own decisions, 
and also not having that constant feeling of exhaustion that I had during most of my married life. I was just exhausted trying to manage everything. And I don't have that now. And I know that if I want to lie in bed, I can't lie in bed. So it's great. To... <laughs> Amen to that. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> just feeling safe in your own home. It shouldn't be something that you should feel grateful for. And, and, and yeah, it is. After speaking to Seda and Judith, I really wanted to catch up with Holly. No matter how long I do this job, it's just every individual story just sort of leaves a, oh, just like this kind of pain in you and this anger. And I think what I learned is just, it's more sort of calcifying what I am kind of have learned already, which is no matter how different a background you come from, abuse is so individual. But it was interesting how similar their stories were and how the sort of lasting pain they experience still is. And I think it was Judith said, it's, it's like they've read the manual. And that is something I, I hear so much talking to, to survivors is it does seem to follow this pattern. To me, it's just, if there's a pattern, then why aren't we doing more to stop this pattern? And also like, there just needs to be so much more support for after that leaving time because it's not only such a dangerous time that we know that that's when women are most likely to, you know, to be killed, but it's dangerous for them in terms of, I think it's actually confronting that you were in an abusive relationship. That was abuse. Yes, that's you. You can use that word. And the, I don't know about you, but the thing that just, like, just hurt my heart so much was both of them just going, I was robbed of my yeah, life. I mean, just, it's haunting, isn't it? I was really struck by the description, one of them, that... It was like the reconstruction of a broken person once they had accessed support. And so, like, the idea that places like Women's Aid, Refuge, Southall Black Sisters are totally essential and need so much support, resource, need to be there, are saving people's lives. As you said, these services are so important. And I know it's so boring, but like one of the most incredible things you can do is just give them money. I know it's, it's boring, but it's so like, simple. And it's not even like, oh God, this podcast made me just feel terrible. I need to give 10 pounds. It's like, sign up to do it a month, like leave it in your will, just like long lasting, you know, reliable income. The other thing I've learned is that this domestic abuse bill is not enough. We've got to carry on fighting and like Pragna said, it's law is not enough. It has to be a willingness to law and that you know, violence against women is a human rights issue. You've been listening to Unfinished Business, a Pixie production for the British Library. If you'd like any support or advice on anything you've heard in today's episode, head to womensaid.org.uk or to southallblacksisters.org.uk. I'm Polly Russell, and I'll be back next week exploring the history of women and comedy with some very funny people. Sandy Toxvig, Sarah Pascoe, and Shazia Mirza. Join me then. Listener.